Hello and welcome to episode 56 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. This is Ben Olson and I am in San Isidro, Costa Rica still. And with me today is Nathan Fox. And where are you, Nathan? Oh, I am in Los Angeles for another couple weeks. My classes in San Francisco start at the end of this month. So I'll be here for another couple weeks and then I'll be back and forth from San Francisco to LA for the remainder of the spring. Yeah, because you're doing a class or you're going to start doing a class there in LA too? I'm doing a weekend class. Uh, I'm calling it an LSAT boot camp, April 23rd and 24th in Los Angeles. Uh, yeah, you can register for that via my website if you're so inclined. But uh, yeah, I'll be back for, I have a, a break, like a 10 day break in my class schedule in San Francisco. So I'll be um, back here probably for that whole chunk and then I'll just be back and forth. I don't know. I can't decide. I'm a nomad. <laughs> cool. Um, How's it Costa Rica, man? Uh, it's good. It's it's uh, it's really nice here. I don't know what to say. We're leaving soon, so that's a little depressing. We're leaving on Wednesday. Today is Monday. And we've really liked it here. It's been relaxing. Everyone here is, at least the people that we've interacted with, are very relaxed. And I do feel like that's a cultural thing <laughs> in stark contrast to D.C. Uh, yeah. And so that's... It, it rubs on it rubs off on you no matter how hard you try you know if you didn't want to but there's no reason not to want to but yeah it's very nice here cool do you think you'll go back like is that gonna become like an annual deal with your family uh well i i could definitely see us coming back but i think we kind of want to go somewhere else too to check something else out you know uh one thing we had talked about was going to europe at this time next year to go skiing so oh wow yeah i don't know we'll see see what happens awesome can i make a beverage recommendation yeah go ahead this is for the listeners mostly i ben do you drink coffee my guess is no no although uh, we've smelled a lot of coffee here because it's a big thing i guess so but you're you're a, you're a superior being, so you do not consume. Yeah, caffeine. why That's why do I do not drink coffee, caffeine, or ca- well, I no, it's not the caffeine. I mean, it is the caffeine, I guess. I've never really had it before. I mean, I've had, I guess, I've had it on occasion, but not really. And so I'm sort of afraid to become dependent on it. Like I know a lot of people who wake up and they're like, oh, I have to have coffee. So I'm just trying to avoid it, so I don't have to feel like, oh, I need to have that when I wake up. It is certainly a daily habit. I find it quite delightful. Oh, okay. I don't think that. So, so yeah, maybe it'd um, be a good a good addiction. I don't know. I'm super type B anyway. You know, I'm like very kind of relaxed mm-hmm. mostly. Mm-hmm. So it's not like having coffee makes me super jittery or anxious or whatever. It's to me, coffee is like I, I I'm drinking my coffee right now and I'm relaxing. But for the listeners, the thing I wanted to recommend was. I always drink coffee um, just black, just straight. Okay. But uh, every once in a while, you know, we get the mood for a little bit of cream in your coffee. And I do that too. Just kind of rarely I do that. But um, if you have not done this before, I really recommend trying uh, putting butter in your coffee. Okay. Butter in your coffee. It's, uh, it's delightful. It's delicious and it makes your coffee smell delightful like butter. Okay. And it performs much the same function as cream does, which is it just kind of changes the texture of the coffee, makes it a little like richer, mm-hmm, smoother, mm-hmm. kind of creamier mm-hmm. sort of thing. Okay. 
So yeah, if you're ever, um, plus it'll blow everybody's mind if they see you do it. So if you're ever somewhere and you want cream in your coffee, but you don't have cream and you do have butter, uh, just go ahead and slice off a pat of butter and throw it in there and stir it up and let me know. How much, how how much do you slice off there? Oh, it just depends on how wonderful you want your coffee to be, Ben. Oh, okay. If you want it to be super wonderful, then you put a lot. (laughs) I don't know. You can definitely overdo it, but, um, yeah, I don't know. I just sliced off a little chunk about the same amount that i would put on you know a piece of toast or something Mm, okay and uh stir it up and yeah it's just wonderful so there you go coffee with butter coffee with butter duly noted Mm -hmm. if i if i ever have a big cup of coffee i'll I'll start it out that way people will be oh yeah first for your very first one if you're feeling especially decadent one of these days ben you want to celebrate something you can go with yeah coffee with butter in it that'll be great okay um cool (laughs) I don't have any great drink recommendations, unfortunately, but what's the best thing you ate in in Costa Rica? Oh, what's the best thing? Well, we've tried a lot of, I feel like, authentic food here, and it's been good. I but nothing really stuck out to me except for this uh, chicken place. It makes really good chicken, astoundingly good chicken, which is kind of boring because it's just chicken. But wow, it's good. So I keep going back there. Like roasted? Yeah, chicken? they just throw it in a bat of oil. <laughs> what? They fry? Yeah, it? and it's ex- fried. The, fry the whole chicken? Well, it's broken up into pieces, but oh, I see. Yeah, it's fried chicken. Yeah. Uh, Do they bread it? They must bread it. I don't know what they put on it, but it's extraordinarily good, and it's extremely cheap. I mean, we go there, and you know, you're it, there's a little bit of a language barrier, and then they say the price, and you're like, wow, oh, yeah, I think okay, yeah, that's. That's what I want. And then they give you five or eight pieces of chicken. You're like, holy smokes. <laughs> For a dollar. Yeah, something crazy. Yeah. So. Yeah. I found in my time, I spent about a month in Ecuador trying and failing to learn Spanish because I apparently my brain does not work in any other language other than English. But I found the food in Ecuador, at least, to be very carb related (laughs) like at one meal there would be popcorn Mm. corn corn fritters potatoes yeah (laughs) like hominy and every other kind of just starchy kind of white food like that um did you get a lot of that in costa rica too yeah well there's a lot of rice and black beans and then plantains, which are like a kind of banana, or they look like bananas yep. and kind of taste like bananas, but they seem... Delicious, to... right? Oh, yeah, they're pretty good. They put those on like every... I see those at every meal, it seems like. there's Yeah, there's there's a decent amount of carbs. Uh, yeah, and french fries, like in tacos. How far are you from the ocean? Uh, Right here, we're a couple hours. Oh, okay. A couple hours to the Pacific, and then... Uh, a couple hours to the Caribbean side, or like three hours. Oh, wow, okay. So we can go either way. Have you been having seafood? Have you had ceviche? Uh, No. We did have oh. fish, but apparently they like to just fry the whole fish, and then they just give you the whole thing, head and everything. I definitely would recommend ceviche if you if you can get it, if you're so inclined. Okay. That's, that's very, very delicious. What, what is it? Ceviche is like marinated fish. It's not raw because the it's the lime juice basically you know cooks the fish. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just 
tart and delicious. Okay. Yeah. Well, we have another day, so we'll figure it out. Maybe we can find it here. Perfect. So on today's agenda, we have uh, an email from David who's emailing us about some old LSAT scores. I guess we have a lot to talk about there. Then we have this New York Times story. A couple people have emailed me about this. Mike has. You got, I think, a tweet about this, right, from what's his name? Kevin Hazler. Yeah, Kevin. Mm Mm-hmm. So yep. this girl is suing her law school and she's going to trial, which is news because that hasn't happened before. Uh, those cases have been rejected before they even got to trial. So that'll be interesting to talk about. Then we're going to talk a little bit. Someone had a question about starting with your books, right? Which book to start with? Oh, yeah, sure. We can hit that quickly. Which will be good. And then the boot camp, which we already talked about a little bit. So let's, let's jump into David. David writes... Um, Hey, I love the podcast. I've been listening and studying for about a month now. Uh, And he was excited to hear about what we had to say about low GPAs and people who have science and engineering degrees because those are a little more challenging. Sometimes you can have a lower GPA and still do reasonably well when it comes to getting into schools. And he says that he has a 278. He graduated with a degree in civil engineering in 2006, and he wants to go into patent law. Um, I guess he's taken the test several times. He took it in 2008 and 2009, three times, scoring a 156, a 153, and a 161 in that order. Um, At the time, he was taking practice tests and getting between a 158 and a 163, so, okay, a little bit higher than the average of those three tests that he took officially. And he was happy with his 161, but he felt that it wasn't high enough given his GPA and ended up not applying to law school and then transitioned from engineering to sales. All right, any thoughts so far? Nathan, I don't mean to keep going. Um. No, I I think he might have, you know, I think he might have short short sold himself there. Although if he was applying it's you know, it was a bad time to apply back then. 2008, 2009 yeah. was like the worst time to get into law school. I know cuz that's what I did. Mm-hmm. And so maybe his 2.78 with a 161 that 2.78 in engineering, we've talked about this before. I mean, that's a that's not a 2.78 in the eyes of the schools. They're going to see that and realize that, oh, shit, that's civil engineering. That means something. Yeah. So a 2.78 engineering with a 161 LSAT, I mean, that's great. Yeah. And I'm sure you could have gotten into a lot of fine schools even better now. Mm-hmm. Uh, now that applications are off or LSATs are off by 50% at least, right, since... 2008, 2009. Yeah. yeah. So he probably sold himself short then, and definitely now he could do a lot better. Although, I guess uh, December 2009, that's the last time he took the test. That test score is no longer usable, right? Well, that's his, that's his question, right? Um, my assumption is that it's best to retake the LSAT, and I'm aiming for June 2016. It'll be almost seven years since I took my last one. Question, is my assumption to retake the LSAT correct? So, yeah, in that sense, yes. If you want to go to law school, you have to, pretty much. Yeah, he has no choice. Um, I 
I, I think it varies school to school. I've heard three years and I've heard five yeah. years. Yeah. I Googled it and right away the Google knowledge panel jumped up and said five years. This is from recent from the Columbia Law School website saying that for this year's class, the latest test that would have counted would have been the June 2011 test. Yeah. Okay. For That's for this year's, uh, for the 2016 class. Uh, it was June 2011. So yeah, five years. So um, David, your 2009 scores are no longer on your record. Yeah, which might be good news to him. Uh, they won't even see that. And so when he retakes it, he won't have anything on his record and he can just start completely anew. Yeah, he is totally starting from scratch. I'm sure that if he was able to score, it said his, he said his practice tests were 158 to 163. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure that it won't take him very long prepping a month or something, maybe, mm-hmm. to get himself back up to that kind of 160. Yeah, so... You have no choice, David. You are definitely taking the test if you want to go to law school. Second question, what are my chances to get into a decent law school with scholarship money if I hit my target of 165? What do you think about that? Well, to get scholarship money, well, that would really depend on the school that he's applying to. And I think there's one thing that we don't know here, and that is what does his 2.78 represent? If his GPA is higher near the end of his uh, studies, you know, his undergraduate studies, I think that would be a lot less of a a burden on him in terms of Mm -hmm. his applications and probably increase his chances of getting scholarship money. But it really depends on what schools he's looking at. He did say, oh, okay, UC Hastings, right? No, okay, so that's a school that you know about. What do you think for his chances of getting a scholarship money there. The problem with UC Hastings, one of the problems with UC Hastings, is that they, in the past, have not had scholarship money to offer. Okay. They, yeah. they just simply were not giving merit-based scholarship money. Yeah. That has, uh, as UC Hastings' ranking has continued to plummet, I mean, it's been falling and falling and falling further. <laughs> Are you responsible for this, Nathan? I would like to think so. I I am trying my best at this point because they're, they've been extremely frustrating to work with. As an alum, I'm just not happy with them hmm. for a million reasons, and I've talked about it on the show a million times. We don't need to get all into sure. that. But they they have been starting to offer some scholarship money lately, and so if they have money to give, uh, maybe... The problem here, so David is definitely a splitter at Hastings. His his 165 LSAT is way above Hastings' current 75th percentile. Mm-hmm. Um, for 2014, Hastings was a 161 on the 75th percentile. Oh, yeah. Which is crazy. It's crazy how far their uh, their ranges have fallen. Huh. That's just, I'm sure that's the case at every school, but particularly Hastings because they're just, you know, kind of in a free fall. Yeah. So his 165 makes him an extremely competitive applicant at Hastings. Like I would say it's almost a no brainer that you'd get in, mm-hmm. but his 2.78 is way below their 25th percentile. Their 25th percentile in 2014 was a 3.2. Mm-hmm. Now they're going to give him some, you know, they're going to give him some credit for being an engineering student, 
they'll probably also kind of discount his GPA because it was so long ago and focus more on LSAT. Yeah. My guess is that it'll be a partial scholarship, just like, you know, doesn't it seem like everybody gets partial scholarships from everywhere? Well, these days, I think schools are trying anything they can to get people to to, to go to their school because even a partial scholarship is really just a discount. You're still ending up paying them more than nothing. Yeah, it's called price discrimination, right? Mm. It's They have a nominal tuition, and if you barely squeak into their school and they know you don't have other options, then they will re- insist that you pay. You know, Or if you don't try to negotiate, mm. they will insist that you pay their rack rate. But what's happening is the schools are offering partial to full scholarship for most of the students at the school. Yeah. In some cases, there'll be, you know, 80% of the class will be on a partial or full scholarship. So everybody's paying a different price. It's just a matter of how hard you're willing to negotiate. I think my advice remains the same, which is apply early, apply broadly, and then just negotiate hard to get yourself the best deal you can when you're going to law school. Yeah. As far as speculating on David's chances, I, I just don't know. Um, I would, again, refer him to the LSAC's LSAT GPA calculator. If you just Google LSAT GPA calculator, you can put in your numbers and you can see where you fall at all of these various schools. Yeah, and well, even if if we just go ahead and put his numbers in right now, I think there's one thing to be said about this. So you you search LSAC or LSAT GPA calculator, LSAC.org's link will come up first. And you go ahead and put in your two numbers. So I'm going to go ahead and put in 2.8. They don't let us do 2.78 here, but that's okay. 2.8 for his GPA and 165 for his target score. And I would then sort the results by likelihood of acceptance from maybe lowest to highest. And if you look over on the far right-hand side, you'll see... Well, on the left-hand side, you'll see a school, and then on the right-hand side, you'll see the likelihood of getting into that school. And I think sometimes people look at these numbers, and they don't necessarily know what to do with them. But let's take a look at UC Hastings really quickly. UC Hastings puts them at 50-50, actually, with these two numbers. You know, I have a bit of a problem with that. Um, I just don't know how much data they have. How how many people actually applied to Hastings with the 2.78 and a 165? That's true, although, I mean, it is LSAC. I was sort of operating under the assumption that if the school participates, some schools are not in this, but the ones that are in it, I'm assuming they're giving them... They're all the way in? All their data, and this is over a few years, maybe, hopefully? Yeah, I guess it, it's just... It's, to me, it just seems possible that there were zero applicants who had exactly those numbers, right? So they must be doing some sort of a aggregation or a calculation in order to reach that number. The percent admission part at the very far right, it puzzles me a little bit. Yeah. I, I just don't know. Well, so I guess the way I would deal with this data, I agree there's some unknowns here, is I would look at this 50-50. So they actually give... Give it a range. They say um, 
in 2014, applicants with the combination score, a combination of a score 165 and a GPA of 2.8 would have a likelihood of admission between 40 and 60%, which is kind of a wide range. But the important thing here is it's a number that you would then, I think, combine with other things that you're bringing to the table. What do you know about your GPA? Is your GPA getting better as your school went along? As you pointed out, is your GPA from long, long ago and thus not as important? Is it from a harder major? Yeah, is it from a harder major? You can't take one of those things and then say, oh, it's from a harder major, so now my GPA doesn't matter, and I'm just going to ignore these averages. But I think what you should do is take these averages. So for him, I'd say 50-50. So you're at a 50% chance of admission, whatever that is. And then either bump that number up or bump it down based on the other factors in your application. You still don't have a hard and fast number. And even when you get a number, what does that mean? Oh, I have a 60% chance. Do you get in or not? We don't know. But uh, I think it can give you some sense of, oh, am I, do I have some chance of getting into school or is it still putting me down at 10% and I should stop wasting my time thinking about these schools? Yeah, I think that's totally reasonable. It can certainly help you pick your target, right? And you probably want a few that are kind of a stretch for you and then you want a handful that are right in the wheelhouse and then you want, I don't know, maybe a couple kind of safety sorts of schools. Mm -hmm. But I'd be looking at 10 schools minimum and probably more. Yeah. Um, I had coffee the other day with a student at UCLA who I love to talk about. She applied to 30 schools. She got fee waivers to like 27 of those schools just because she asked. Hmm. And she applied to like 30 schools and she ended up with a full ride to UCLA, which was like her number one choice where she wanted to go. And it's like, was that a lot of work for her to do that? Yeah. Did it cost her some money? Yeah. But how much how much money did she make from doing that? <laughs> yeah. She's now she's at UCLA on a full ride. Yeah. So, you know, I I'd always it, I just always scratch my head when I hear students that are, "Oh yeah, I'm just going to apply to these two or three schools and and I just don't know why you wouldn't build a better case for yourself and give yourself a chance to get some really crazily good offer." Yeah, I think what people have to realize is that I mean, I don't know how many people do this, but I would totally think about this whole process as a probability thing. The more schools you apply to, assuming you put your effort into the application, you don't want to make it look like you didn't think through the unique questions for each school, if there are some. But the more schools you apply to, the more chances you have of some schools saying, you know what, we are lacking people from the southeastern part of the United States and we want to increase our numbers there. I mean, the motivations that these admissions officers have is unknown, right? In a lot I mean, there are a lot of known things, but there are a lot of unknown things that we just would have we'd never have access to that information, but if you apply to 30 schools like you're saying, you increase your chances that at one of those schools you fall into a particular group that they're trying to cultivate at their school. And I'm not just talking about, you know, the traditional diversity classes. There's a whole range of random things that sometimes these schools are looking to enhance. They want more women. They want more men. 
They have admitted way more women at the beginning of this cycle than they had anticipated. So now they want more men from the west from Western states. You know who knows? It, yep. It, it's you just have no idea. But if you like you said, apply to all these schools you may hit one that you fit right into their thing. I mean, I hear it all the time, too, with people who apply to top law schools. They get in, they get rejected at Columbia, they get rejected at UVA, but then all of a sudden Harvard accepts them. And you're like, what about their application struck a chord with some random admissions officer at Harvard? We don't know, but who cares? And you can just fly past everyone else. Uh, And normally you'd expect that if you didn't get into UVA, you would not have a chance at Harvard, but that's not the case at all. Yeah, I think I think sometimes people, you know, (laughs) apply to Harvard when they have literally zero chance. Yes, I'm sorry, I don't (laughs) want to encourage that. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think that's just a waste of everybody's time and money. And it's just you're being silly with, you know, your 3.0 and your 150 LSAT and you're applying to Harvard. It's like, sorry, they got those. They got enough applications there, you know, but when you have, when you have some stellar thing on your, on your application, even if it's just a really high GPA or you were your valedictorian, Mm -hmm. or even if it's just a very high LSAT score, or there are very interesting things about you, you know, you're, you've got decent LSAT, decent GPA, but you played trombone in the performance local performance band or university band or whatever it's it's like yeah harvard might not have a musician in their current class yet and there might be somebody in the committee who really wants a musician in this year's incoming class yeah yeah i was uh, i heard a podcast the other day i might as well make this recommendation while i'm on it um but i heard a podcast the other day uh with a guest named kate hall who went to Yale and then uh, practiced law for a while. She said mostly doing appellate work. Um, sounded like she argued in front of the Supreme Court of the United States. Mm-hmm. And then uh, quit law because she didn't like mm-hmm. it, And which I would love, by the way. If anybody knows Kate Hall and wants to make me happy, please get her in touch with me so she can come on the show and talk about why she didn't want to practice law even after she went to Yale. <laughs> Because I think it would be an awesome story for people to hear. But she um, quit practicing to become a professional poker player. No way. Yeah, Kate Hall. So how much money can you make um, as a professional poker player? I guess it just depends on how good you are, right? Like, Yeah, and way more. You can make way more than you can make practicing law, for sure. I mean, If you're in the top it's a, 2%, top 10%? Yeah, or just get in your in the right game. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, if you get in the right, the right local games high roller you know games i'm sure you can make hundreds of thousands slash millions of dollars playing poker Hmm. against the right opponents right i mean there's like the billionaire guy who just wants to learn how to play poker and he enjoys losing his money to you Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right (laughs) that's i mean that's how i think a lot of the the big pros make make their living in in poker is like getting into these really good games yeah Anyway, the point I was trying to make long-windedly was she was talking about how at Yale they they do like an introductory speech to the incoming class mm-hmm. and they call out, you know, um they call out all of the skills of the 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 new incoming class. Oh, interesting. 
Yeah, and which, you know, by, by the way, I'm thinking like, God damn it, Hastings with 500 people in the incoming glass and they treated us like cattle. And, <laughs> you know, there's like no, nothing even approaching that at a school like Hastings. But uh, yeah, you know, you get into Yale, um, your fellow classmates are going to be really, really impressive people. And Kate Hall was actually talking about another um a colleague of hers who was a couple years ahead of her at Yale Law School named Vanessa Selbst, who is like one of the top poker players in the world. Hmm. And she was already playing sort of professionally before she even went to Yale Law School. But she was in the speech. Vanessa Selbst was in, the, was in that year's speech. Oh, okay. And so that got me thinking about law school admissions, right? Where it's like, you know, what is that thing on your resume or what is that thing in your in your story that's going to impress somebody on the committee and you know because they're thinking about what they're thinking about i mean the yale whoever's making those decisions at yale it's probably in the back of their mind like what that speech is going to look like next year that one differentiating factor some school might already be full up on professional poker players that year but some other school might need a professional poker player you know or a musician or an athlete or a man or a woman or whatever And so if you apply broadly, then you give yourself so many other chances to be that one person. Yeah. And, and the thing I was going to add, I mean, that's, a, that's an excellent point. The thing I would add to that is that this does not mean, at least I don't think it means, that you should throw everything on the wall in your application. In other words, you're applying to a lot of different schools. That's how you spread out the increase your chances but when it comes to your actual application i think students who try to throw every little thing that they've ever done on there actually muddles their application so that you don't come across as the musician or the scientist or whatever instead it's just like well who is this person they looks like they like rock climbing but they also just you know they they do whatever something else and so nothing actually comes across in your application yeah, that's a thing that I got from Anne Levine, I think, is, is the idea of painting a picture of yourself and especially using your personal statement to kind of tie it all together. And, and here's my theme and not just rehash your entire resume. Yeah. You know, since I was a kid, I thought about being a lawyer. And so then in high school, I did this. And then in college, I did this. It's like, all right, that's you and everyone else sounds exactly like that, right? But if you have an interesting component of your story, I'm working with a private tutoring student now on Skype who's a Berkeley student who still, you know, flies to Palm Springs once a month to go do competitive, um, like dressage, uh, horseback, oh, okay. you know, the fancy horseback riding. <laughs> Dude, that's an, I was going to say that's another vocab you're throwing out there that I just don't know. Oh, I'm Mr. Vocabulary apparently. Um, no, it, yeah, it's like a fancy horseback riding kind of thing. Okay. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it, that to me immediately was like, boy, I hope you write your personal statement about that. Yeah. Because, and, and you know, you're going to show yourself doing all of the usual, like I'm a, you're going to show yourself to be hardworking and smart and diligent and all, you know, persistent and all those things that are going to make you a, a solid law student and a solid lawyer. Yeah. But instead of claiming all of those things, you're going to display all of those things via this very interesting world of dressage, which people don't know anything about and makes you different and unique. Yeah, 
For sure. Right? So now you're telling a story that's interesting and you're showing all of these characteristics that are going to make you useful in law school and in the courtroom. And yeah, and, and, and I think the thing that students need to understand is that, you know, they're going to be discussing you in a committee where somebody has read your application and they've decided that, hey, this person's kind of on the bubble. Um, they've got LSAT and GPA that put them in contention, not an obvious admit, but in contention. Now we're looking at their personal statement and their resume and kind of their whole story. Mm -hmm. And they're bringing you to committee where the other people on the committee don't know your story. Mm -hmm. And then you, they, this person wants you to be in the class, and they have to basically pitch you, right, to the other, to the, to the other people on the committee. Yeah. And so then, hey, I got this girl. She's a competitive dressage rider. While finishing her degree at UC Berkeley. And it's it's like a it's it's you need to think about it as almost like an elevator pitch kind of thing, mm -hmm. right? Like, who are you in twenty seconds? Yeah. And you can't be multiple things. That's no right. So yeah, make your best pitch. Pick, but but you got kind of got to pick like a theme, and then just send that pitch to thirty schools, and 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 something good's gonna happen. Yeah. So this next, did you have anything else to say on that? Sorry, I didn't mean to. No, 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 no. That, uh, I've been talking plenty. Okay, cool. So this this next. Uh, item that we want to talk about is this New York Times article by Elizabeth Olson, who, by the way, spells her last name the right way. So almost everyone spells it with an E, but I spell it with an O, and so does she. So now... Damn those Ashley twins, <laughs> the, or the, the, the Ashleys. No, wait, it's not Ashley. It's one of them's Ashley and one of them's Mary Kate. Yes, that's right, yes. Why do I know They got that? it wrong. I don't know why, but oh well, it's too bad. They spelled it wrong and that ruined it yeah, for you. Yeah, I, don't, I guess they're more yeah. famous than me, so that's strange. But... Um, this article in the New York Times came out yesterday. It's called Law Graduate Gets Her Day in Court Suing Law School. And this person went to, let's see, her name is Anna. She went to Thomas Jefferson School of Law. She graduated in the top of her class. She spent, she says, about $150,000 to get her law degree. She then, um, when did she graduate? She graduated in 2008. So this is when a lot of people were going to law school and she has yet to find a full-time salary job as a lawyer. She has apparently taken a lot of part-time non-legal related work, uh, some part-time legal work, which would involve document review, which sounds awful, by the way. And she's now 37 and she's suing her law school. And her basic claim is that hey, you presented statistics to me and to everyone who was applying to your law school back in 2005 or 2004 that said I had a really good chance of getting a full, a, a really good chance of getting a job after I graduated. And technically, I don't think the school lied. I'm not sure about this because they probably just said how many people were employed what they didn't reveal was that a lot of those people were not employed in either a legal position or they were employed only part-time, sometimes employed by the school itself for the three weeks that they were doing the survey so that they could count them as employed. Yep, that's a famous 
trick. Yeah. So this is this is they definitely did bad things, although technically it probably wasn't a lie, technically, but it certainly was misleading. And she's saying, Hey, look, if I had known that my chances of getting a job were much lower than what you suggested they were, or the job that we're actually talking about, a real legal job, then I wouldn't have gone to school. And so now she's suing the school for $125,000, which I thought was actually kind of reasonable. I was expecting her to ask for a lot more. But the thing that's unique about this case is that there have been 15 cases, or at least 15 cases, that have been like this one before. People have sued their law school saying, hey, you misled me. I can't get a job. Now I want my money back or something along those lines. And they've all been rejected before they even went to trial because the judges just said, hey, look, you should have known what you were getting into, and we can't hold the law school accountable for this, so your case is out. But this judge is in California, San Diego, I guess, and California does seem to be a little bit more lenient to things like this. And so she is going to trial, and she's going to try to get $125,000. Do you have any thoughts on this? Oh, man. So many thoughts. I mean, um, I would not speculate, you know, whether this is going to be successful or not. I just read it as a cautionary tale about, you know, whether or not people should be going to law schools like this. You know, I think that's a really good point. I think you can get into (laughs) whether she should win or shouldn't win or whatever, but the bottom line is that here's a student who is at the top of her class. Maybe she hasn't gotten a good job because she doesn't interview very well or doesn't present herself very well. I have no idea. We have no idea why she hasn't gotten a job. Or does just doesn't really legitimately want to practice law. Right? Yeah, and, and subconsciously conveys that or something. Or Yeah. Who right. knows? We don't know. We, know we don't know anything. Right. Or maybe she's... I mean, she was top of her class, so maybe she's the she's the model student out there, and yet she couldn't get a job, and it's, it's precisely because this school sucks, and no one's interested in hiring students from this school. Who knows? Doesn't matter, though. She also could have turned it down because she wasn't, you know, turned down offers that weren't paying her enough. Yeah, she did say that, uh, well, one of the, the school's counter-arguments is that she was offered a $60,000 a year full-time legal position at some firm, and she declined that. And she says she declined it because there were better non-legal options out there. Who knows, you know? But the bottom line here is that there are people out there who feel like they can't get a job, haven't been able to get a job for whatever reason, and you'd assume that they somewhat wanted it. I mean, they're going through the trouble of suing. So know what you're getting into and do not rely solely on the school that you're applying to statistics. I mean, even if those stats are accurate, what does that say about you? What are your chances of getting a job? They're, they're not 100%, so you still got to work it after you are in school and once you leave. So unless this is something you really want to do, get out. I, I Yeah, I think people like this probably shouldn't have been in law school in the first place. For whatever reason, they were misguided when they chose to start law school. I mean, I'm not talking, I'm not saying specifically in this woman's case, but I'm looking right now at the Thomas Jefferson stats, right? We're back on this LSAT GPA calculator. 2014, the 25th percentile LSAT score was 141. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
75th percentile LSAT score at Thomas Jefferson was 148. Ooh. So the the middle 50% of the class yeah. was between 141 and 148. Sounds like the middle of the class is 144 or 145. Wow. And this is in 2014. This is in 2014. So we would expect that it might be worse, if anything, in 2015, 2016, since the applications tend to be going down everywhere, it seems like. I don't know. That's, again, just speculating. Yeah. But, it, you know, it, I don't want to be like a dick, but if you have a 145 final LSAT score, I, I don't, I'm not going to hire you to be my lawyer. I'm sorry. Yeah. Law is adversarial. It's like gladiator matches. And I'm just not hiring somebody who got a 145. There's plenty of people out there with 160s and 165s. And it's not like the LSAT score is the only be-all, end-all determinant of how good of a lawyer you're going to be, but it's an awfully good proxy. You know, it's just, I just don't know of a better shorthand. Yeah. And I would guarantee that if a team of 10 165s is going to beat a team of 10 145s every time. Yeah. You know, it's just, I'm sorry, they're better at language. They're better at the English language. And this battle, these battles are going to be fought in English. Yep. And, you know, LSAT scores say a lot about your facility with the English language and also say a lot about your willingness to work hard and your ability to learn if you do work hard. And so anyway, if I'm looking at this, you know, and I'm not picking on Thomas Jefferson specifically. I'm not picking on you if you're currently scoring a 145. By the way, if you have a 145, I've seen people go from 145 to 165 all the time. But we're talking about final LSAT score you know, presumably these people put in preparation. If they didn't put in preparation, then I don't want them to be my lawyer for that reason as well. Yeah. But the point is, if you're looking at a, a law school full of 145s, I just don't see how that is creating a bunch of very productive future lawyers. Well, this, I, I know this, this isn't really about this law school, but I think this, the more I read about this law school right now, the more I'm thinking this law school should not even exist. So, for example, it says under, this is on Wiki, says the ranking of the School of Law, of this, the Thomas Jefferson School of Law, by U.S. News and World Report is not published, as they do not publish rankings of schools that fall below 145. The school is not ranked either in national jurist rankings of the top 80 schools, and according to the law professor blog Faculty Lounge, 28.8% of the class of 2012 was employed in full-time, long-term positions requiring a bar admission, ranking it 120, 192 out of 197. Like I don't yeah. think these schools that are at the bottom of the apparently 197 law schools out there should even exist. They should be closed and stop taking people's money because what are they doing for these people other than taking their money and saying, okay, now you have a less than a third percent chance of getting a actual legal position requiring a legal degree. Yeah. 
Hard to argue with you, Ben, on that. I mean, I, I, that's one where I don't know that I would go that far as to, to but I, I, I can't, I also can't argue against it. I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't um, mean to offend anyone who's going to these schools and maybe they yeah. have something else going. I mean, I, this is just me reading these right here, but I'm just thinking, first of all, I can't believe there are 197 law schools in this country. And of those law schools, I mean, the bottom 50, I would suspect that most of them are not doing anything good for their students. Well, and, it, and let's not paint with too broad of a brush. I, I think that <laughs> I don't know. I'm gonna. I'm feeling pretty confident about that. I think the bottom fifty probably need to go. But go ahead. Yeah. What do you think? Well, let me make a couple. Let me just make a couple counterpoints. Okay, go for okay? it. So let's say you have family connections. Okay. Full stop. So you just need a degree. Yeah, you need a degree because you're going to work in your family's law firm. Okay. Your family's going to pay you to go to Western State. They're going to give you a job. In that case, I, I, I wait. How did I switch from Western State? Western State's definitely a higher ranked law school, um, if if only slightly. Um, so for a long time, subconsciously, you've wanted to knock on them. Tom, <laughs> Thomas Jefferson. Yeah. You know, you're 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 going. You're you're going to go to Thomas Jefferson. Your family's going to pay for it, and they're going to hire you. All you got to do is just graduate and pass the bar. Yeah. Okay. Great. You know, fine. And and for all I know, Thomas Jefferson, the quality of the legal education at Thomas Jefferson might easily be better than the quality of the legal education at UC Hastings. Very easily. Because that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about quality of legal education. When we talk about, at least I'm not, when I talk about um, like employability after law school, I don't think it has anything to do with the three years while you were at school. Yeah. I think it has to do with how strong of a candidate you are to begin with and then how hard you work and how, you know, how much you sell yourself after you graduate. But I, it's, I think people really confuse, they, they get confused by the selection bias. We've talked about this before on the show. So if your family, if you know you have the connections, fine. If you know you can work it and you know you're going to hustle and you know you're going to succeed in law because you've worked as a paralegal for 10 years and you know what it takes and you're like, yep, I'm going to hang my shingle. I know exactly what I'm going to do. This is it. Boom. Fine. Then Thomas Jefferson might be a great deal for you. Another chance, another possibility where I think Thomas Jefferson might be a great deal for you is if you're overqualified to go to Thomas Jefferson. Okay. If you're uh, David, like we were talking about earlier, and you have a 2.8 and a 165, I would almost guarantee that Thomas Jefferson is going to give you scholarship money, right? Like probably full ride. And in that case, I don't think that the, you know, oh, only 28% of Thomas Jefferson graduates get a full-time job. Well, that's a lot because they've got a 145 LSAT score. And when you're David, who has an engineering degree and a 165, if he gets his 165 LSAT score, that dude is very employable no matter where he goes to law school. So, of course, a higher-ranked school has better connections, but it's not all about those connections when you're going to get your first job or when you're going to hang your own shingle. The people that really worry me are the people who are paying full freight at Thomas Jefferson, who don't have connections in the legal world, who don't really know what it's like to be a lawyer, and who are just doing this kind of magical thinking where it's like, oh, ooh, JD, this is going to be a transformative kind of a thing. All I got to do is just get into Thomas Jefferson and I'm going to be set for life. Yeah. Because I'm going to become a lawyer. And then they look up like 
starting salary for lawyer and it says $65,000 and they're like, oh yeah, awesome, you know, <laughs> I'm going to do that. And then it, uh, like those are the people, that's where I lose sleep at night is on, is on those people. And if that's the bulk of the class, then I would absolutely say, you know, this doesn't, this shouldn't exist. Yeah, well... I guess I feel like for all the exceptions that you carved out, like the people who have who are overqualified and maybe getting a scholarship or a full ride, and uh, the people who are well connected, I feel like they could still all be served by the law schools that are ranked from one hundred to one fifty. Even if we got rid of the bottom fifty. Sure, I mean, and then where do you draw the line? It's just well, but see, what happens is if you get rid of those bottom fifty, then you also get rid of a lot of people who shouldn't be going to law school because now they can't get into these these higher-ranked schools, and that's good for them because now they're not in debt, they're not deceived. I mean, at this school, I don't know, you tell me whether the bulk are benefiting or not, but it says the, the bar passage rate is 54.7%. That's first time. So yeah. it's a, probably a little higher than that because people take it again. But still, I mean, half, almost half your class – not passing the bar the first time, that's really scary to me. That's just like... Yeah, and it, and by the way, again, that has nothing to do with the quality of the legal education. <laughs> it has everything to do with the, the, the strengths and weaknesses of the actual individuals that are in Yes, school. exactly. And so those people should not have gone to law school in the first place. Yet they were pulled in because of this place, and this place accepted them. And they said, okay, here's my money. It almost feels like Trump University or something, you know? Right. <laughs> not to... Yeah, maybe it's not that bad, but <laughs> I feel like it's yeah. almost that bad with some of these schools. Yeah, I mean, I think my general rule of thumb, and I, I think we might have agreed on this in the past, is basically if you're under a 150 LSAT score, final LSAT score, under 150, yeah. you know, you study as hard as you can and you never crack the 150 barrier, you're going to have a hard time with the bar exam, especially in a state like California. Mm-hmm. And... I would just question whether this is really the right path for yeah. you. The presumption is against you, and you need to overcome that somehow. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> that I would have. I would have to make that same presumption. You know, and it's not like I don't believe in any individual person. I've got uh, Western State has been on my mind because I have a former student, one of my very first LSAT students, who you know he struggled quite a lot with the with the LSAT, and I think he ended up in the low-ish 150s maybe on his on his LSAT and he ended up going to uh, Western State and I follow him on LinkedIn and I just recently saw that he has started his own law firm. Hmm. He was practicing and now he has started his own law yeah. firm. And for a dude like that, it's, it's like he was going to be successful no matter where he went. Mm-hmm. And so in that case, you know, Western State did him a great service. And I imagine that Thomas Jefferson could do the same thing for someone like that. But right, the bulk of the class who they don't really know what they're doing. They don't really have any connections. They didn't achieve a very strong LSAT score. Yeah, you'd have to bet against them on the bar exam and you'd have to bet against them in the employment market as well. Unfortunately. Yeah. Wow, this is depressing. <laughs> so, the next... Holy shit, Kate Hall just liked my tweet. I tweeted about that uh, that podcast episode. Oh, you know what? I never gave out the actual... Um, the actual uh, it's called the Thinking Poker Podcast. 
I might have mentioned it before. So wait, what? What just happened? Kate Hall is this person from Yale, right? Kate Hall is this person from Yale, and she just liked a tweet that I made earlier today. Oh. So she is aware that I exist. Oh, now you need to tweet back. And you need to say, come on my show. I mentioned her in the tweet. So yeah, so now I obviously have to tweet again and see if she'll come on the show. Because that'd be awesome, I think. Yeah. She was a, a really cool guest. But So this interview, I've been listening to it for, or this podcast, I've been listening to it forever. It's called the Thinking Poker Podcast. We named our own podcast, Thinking Elsa <laughs> Podcast, as kind of an homage to the Thinking Poker Podcast. Yeah. Uh, these guys, Andrew Brokus and Nate Mavis, they do a really great job. I don't even play poker, but I just love listening to it because it's just smart guys talking about smart mm -hmm. shit. And they have awesome guests all the time. Um, and so this was a recent episode. I want to say I had it on our agenda somewhere. Look at this. Actually doing preparation. It was episode 162, and you can go to thinkingpoker.net uh, and listen to episode 162 of the Thinking Poker podcast if you want to hear Kate Hall and talking about Yale. Okay, cool. Yeah. All right. Well, that's good. I hope she's on next next time. <laughs> yeah, that'd be awesome. I I would I would love to ask her questions about why is she, you know, because it's awesome, right? To think about that somebody who obviously crushed the LSAT. Mm -hmm. Uh, if she got into Yale, she obviously did very well mm -hmm. on the LSAT mm -hmm. and did well apparently at Yale and ended up practicing law at like the very highest levels. And then very, very quickly decided that it wasn't for yeah. her. Yeah, that'd be cool to talk to her. Yeah. Yeah. I hope she comes on. Kate, come on. <laughs> All right. So this, this next question is more for you, Nathan. It's about your books. So someone said uh, that she's planning to get one of your books, but can't tell which one she should go with. Um, she hadn't begun prepping yet and scored a 160 on the June 2007 exam. A heads up, by the way, on that exam, I feel like it's easier than other exams. I feel like the games are easier and the logical reasoning is easier. Do you agree with me on that? I don't know. I have never studied it. I do know that those games are fairly manageable, uh, especially the first game. The, the only reason I mentioned it is because a lot of people take that test, which they should, because it's free. So you just download it, June 2007, LSAT, you take it. And then you get a score, but sometimes I feel like they get they can get kind of a, a score that's skewed a little higher than a test that they might take from a more recent exam. But anyways, okay. it's it's roughly in that ballpark. She said she'd like to max out her score as much as possible, of course. And she said in the game she only missed one, but then ran out of time on the last seven questions. So sounds like she did about three games. I miss she missed three in section two, which is logical reasoning, which we've been going through on the podcast. She missed five in section three. She missed seven in section four. Okay, so she needs to improve her speed in logic games, she says, and general understanding in the other sections. So it sounds like she finished the other ones but just missed those questions. Given what I need to work on, what book would be best for me to start with, Nathan? Yeah, so I would always say start with my cheapest, um, most accessible book, which is called Introducing the LSAT. It's very short. Uh, you can read it in probably one day, and it's meant to be a primer. Um, it kind of has, it says on the back cover that it's 80% of everything that I know about the LSAT in 20% of the time. Cool. And it's probably more like 90% of everything I know in 10% of the time. I mean, it's just like, it's just really foundational kinds of yeah. stuff. So start with that. It's an easy read. Um, 
beyond that, I would probably move into my very first book I ever wrote, which is called che uh, Cheating the LSAT. Uh, the Cheating the LSAT is just one full test. And the idea behind that book is that, you know, any one test, I, I believe, contains the DNA of, like, all the mm -hmm. tests. And if you really could understand one test all the way, then I think you would pretty much be able to manage almost any practice test. I'm not saying <laughs> just do cheating the LSAT and you'll be done. Yeah. But I, I do think that if this is the beginning of your prep and you really are still kind of just wanting to get your feet under you, I would go with cheating the LSAT, work your way all the way through that book, and then just get back to me. So this is Cordelia. Thank you for, she commented, huh, on our website. Mm -hmm. Um, that's great. Thank you, Cordelia. And you can always, if you want, just contact me directly for questions like that. Um, I'm Nathan at foxlsat.com. Cool. Yeah, no, I really like the, the 80, 20 idea, uh, Pareto's principle or whoever came up with that, like see how much you can learn quickly so you can get your foundation down and then slowly chip away at the rest as you keep prepping. Yeah. 80% of the benefit coming from 20% of the effort in almost every endeavor, right? The easy example is uh, you're in college and you've got a disaster area of an apartment and your mom announces that she's making a surprise visit. And, you know, you're not going to get that place spick and span because you just don't have time. But you can be amazed how much you can accomplish in, in a very short amount of yeah. time. Right, because you're doing the main, getting the pizza boxes and beer cans out of there, you know, and hiding the bong in the closet, and maybe you run the vacuum cleaner. And if she looked behind the couch, it would be, you know, it'd be absolutely disgusting. But at least when she walks in there, she's gonna see. You can get the bulk of it, is what I'm yeah. saying, in a in a pretty quick um, exposure. So that's the purpose of that first book that I wrote, introducing the LSAT. I also have it priced, by the way, to make exactly $0. When you buy Introducing the LSAT, I make nothing. Um, all the, the fees are going to Amazon and to the LSAC for the licensed questions that are in it. I wanted it to just be kind of out there in the world. So, yeah, that's my gift to you. Cool. That's very good. We'll go ahead and tackle uh, a question from the June 2007 LSAT. That's the one we were just talking about. You can find this LSAT by just searching for June 2007 LSAT, and it will be the first search result. It's a PDF uh, on LSAC.org, so you can just download that and open it up. And right now we're in Section 2, which is the Logical Reasoning section, and we are on Question 17. So let me, I'm still pulling that up, but Nathan, do you have that in front of you? Yeah, I can read it, yep. Uh, hospital Executive says... At a recent conference on nonprofit management, several computer experts maintained that the most significant threat faced by large institutions such as universities and hospitals is unauthorized access to confidential data. Okay. Uh, that's a lot. One, two, three, four, five, six lines. A lot of big words. Yeah. First thing I would do there is I would just have to stop and digest that and make sure I understand it. Yeah. So if you were to start at its core, what would you say the main idea of that sentence is? Threat. Yes. You know, um, this guy, is, it's, it's several computer experts. 
we're at a conference and these computer experts are are like, hey, threat. What's the large threat and who's being threatened? Mm -hmm. Institutions are being threatened. So this is universities and hospitals. And they're being threatened by unauthorized access to data. Yeah. I'm already very skeptical of that. Okay. What are you skeptical of? Because in some ways, I I agree with you that we should be skeptical. But the, uh, uh, on, on the other hand, I'm just sort of like, okay, you're claiming this. That might not be true. But let's see what else, where this passage is going. And if it starts to try to sure. make an argument on the basis of that, then... Um, maybe we just have to accept it as true because it's a premise or maybe it's the conclusion and then we need to be really skeptical. I'm just kind of thinking, okay, do I understand what they're claiming? Yeah. I just generally, the way I understand this stuff is by resisting. Okay. You know, I, I just don't like to nod along. If I find myself agreeing, like, yeah, totally. Shit. Yeah. Date unauthorized access to data. I mean, that's a huge problem. If I find myself doing that, I just don't do as well on the questions yeah. for me. Yeah. I, you know, I, I have to be skeptical. Yeah. I cannot be like credulous. I have to be skeptical. So my response to this is like, wait a minute. All right, computer nerds, you're saying that the most significant threat for large institutions is unauthorized access to data. Well, let me talk to you about the threat that Thomas Jefferson School of Law is currently facing. <laughs> yeah. Right? Thomas Jefferson School of Law is currently facing um, lawsuits and a whole bunch of public backlash, including podcasters slamming them yeah. for not doing a good job for their students. And maybe they face um, some hacking threats. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But if I'm the chancellor or dean or whatever of the thomas jefferson school of law today mm-hmm. i'm much more concerned about this story in the new york times than i am about somebody hacking in and getting my students shoe sizes out of the computer yeah. no i i agree it's it's good to be critical and i think one thing we definitely agree on here is it's good to be engaged or i'm sorry it's not good it's absolutely 100 percent essential if you're not yeah. then this is where things fall apart. And I do feel like a lot of people read long sentences like this and then they just say, uh, yeah, I can't, I mean, I get what it's about. It's about computer stuff. It's about threats. It's about unauthorized. Unauthorized access. Yeah. Got it. And then they move on and they just absolutely don't got yeah. it. Right. They don't, they have, they haven't taken a moment to engage the way I engage. I mean, this is, I guess my brand, but my, whole fundamental strategy for the logical reasoning is to engage in a very critical way. Mm-hmm. If I can get pissed off, then it means I'm paying attention. Yeah. So I'm trying to disagree with these date computer experts. There is a little bit of a hint there when they use the word maintained, mm-hmm. right? When they say maintained or claimed, they are often maintaining or claiming something that turns out to be kind of not hundred percent rock solid. Right. So it, I think it's a premise of the argument that they are, that they are making this claim, Yeah. but the claim itself doesn't have to be true. And I'm fully engaged by talking about ways in which it might not be true. Right. And, and so then I think that, that helped me. Now we really understand, we know who 
is making this claim and we know what the claim is. That's the really important part. Yeah, no, I agree. I, um, I think there's a slight difference here in the sense that I might not jump all over this sentence until I read the rest, but I would definitely want to make sure I understood what it's saying and be able to tell someone else in my own words the idea, the core idea of that sentence, which a lot of people can't do, right? They, you say, oh, do you understand it? Yes, I do. Okay, what did it say? Uh, at a recent conference on nonprofit management, like they just start rereading it yeah, and right. they didn't really get it. Yeah, exactly. And, and so, right. So that's a little bit of like a, a test, you know, and I do this with my tutoring students. I mean, if you, if you worked with me one-on-one, that's one of the things that I would ask you to do is I would say, okay, can you tell, you know, I, they stop, I st- I'll stop them, mm-hmm. right? Because they want to immediately read the second sentence and just get blunder right into the answer choices. Yeah. And so I'll stop them and I'll say, at the end of the first sentence, I'll say, okay, hold on. Um, do you, are you sure you understood what that first sentence meant? Oh, yeah, yeah, I got it. Oh, okay. Well, then could you tell me ways in which it might not necessarily be true? <laughs> yeah, that's good. And then they got absolutely nothing. A lot of the time, right? They got nothing. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's, it's like if you can't make the counter argument, then you don't know what it said. Yeah. I'm not saying every single time you need to be making these counter arguments, but you you just said ben it's a, it's essential that you are engaged yeah. right the necessary part here is you have to get engaged and for me it's sufficient if i get pissed off cool if i get pissed off then i know i'm engaged yeah. no that makes sense and so this little test is like you know can you make the other argument can you tell me maybe something that might be wrong with this hey someone is making a claim can you think about how you might defend against that claim mm-hmm. Okay. So then, yeah, what does it say next? In light of the, that was all the first Mm -hmm. sentence. Second sentence. In light of this testimony, we should make the protection of our client's confidentiality our highest priority. Boom. So that is, that's the last sentence in this passage. And it's, that's, there's just two sentences. sentences, And it's certainly the conclusion because. It says, in light of this testimony, in other words, we're going to use this testimony as evidence for something that we say we should do, which is almost always a conclusion, not always, but almost always. And so this is a conclusion, and it's saying that we should make the protection of our client's confidentiality our highest priority. We should do kind of what we should respond to what they said as if what they said is gospel. Yeah. No, we should not. Yep. Why not? Stop telling me what to do. When it says we should, I mean, I, I, I say it in class for like shock value. You know, I'm teaching classes from 6 to 10 p.m. And I, I'm, people have been at work all day and I'm trying to keep them awake. And so one of the things that I'll do is drop a lot of F-bombs. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in light of this testimony, we should make the protection of our client's confidentiality our highest priority. And I'm just like, don't fucking tell me what to do. Stop mm-hmm. it. The word should is it, it, I've trained myself to be an asshole, I guess, but the word should to me is it should, it, it needs to jump off the page at yeah. you. Right. And you, you need to especially resist these kinds of like normative conclusions or like, Hey, here's what we need to, hey, yep, this is, we got to do mm-hmm. this. I'm always going to make the counter argument when I see something like that. Yeah. No. You know, we, we should make the protection of our client's confidentiality our highest priority. And it, I, it's just too perfect right now to say, really? That's what Thomas Jefferson needs to worry yeah. about? 
No, I agree. And and one thing we should be clear here is that you do have to accept the premises is true. And so in this case, there's only one premise. So we do have to accept the fact that several computer experts have said this. They have maintained. Absolutely. I am granting that as fact. You know, I'm sitting there in the conference and there's a blue ribbon panel of the world's greatest computer experts Mm -hmm. up there. You know, I'm not saying like, oh, these are dorky, you know, these are, these computer experts are not actually experts, right? I'm not saying that. These are computer experts Mm -hmm. and there are several of them and they honestly believe, right, that, that the most significant threat faced by these large institutions is unauthorized access to confidential data. That they've said that all day. That's all they've been talking about for this entire day's conference. And that's a that's fact. That's a fact. And they've been saying... That they said they, it. Yeah, yeah, they said it. And that would be totally different if they had said, if this hospital executive just asserted, quote, the most significant threat faced by large institutions is unauthorized access to confidential data. Even then, we could take issue with some of the logic here and why this conclusion is not necessarily true, even if that is true. But it's a lot different than this premise because this premise doesn't even say whether that is true. It doesn't say whether the biggest threat is unauthorized access to confidential data. It's just saying that several computer experts have maintained or said that that is true. And so, uh, great, they said that's true. Is it actually true? I don't know. We have to believe that they're right. And so that would be flaw number one, right? Are they even right? Uh, and then once, if we accepted that, then we'd have to ask yourself, ourselves, as even if they're right, does that still mean that we should make the protection of our clients' confidentiality our highest priority? So there's, there's two yeah. major questions that remain unanswered, even if we accept this premise as 100% true. Yeah, I'm imagining my conversation. I'm like in the car on the way home with this hospital executive, mm-hmm. right? Or even better, law school executive. <laughs> And I'm, and this, I'm, I'm sitting with the chancellor of Thomas Jefferson Law School, and we just went to this conference, and the Thomas Jefferson chancellor is now like, boy, we really, you know, they, those experts, they said that we really need to be careful about our data. So, hey, for, for 2016, 2017, we need to make protection of our students' confidentiality our highest priority at Thomas Jefferson. Yeah. And I'm just thinking about what I would say back to that. I'm going to consider both sides of this, Mm -hmm. right? And my objection would be exactly like you're saying is, hey, they said this, but they're not necessarily right. And two, even if they are right, even if this is the biggest threat that faces us right now, how expensive is it going to be to make confidentiality of data our highest priority? Don't we have other priorities? Yeah. Yeah. What about priorities number two, three, and four? Yeah. You know, what if we could do all of two, three, and four, or just do number yep. one? And and so, what are the trade-offs? And and really, we don't have other more important stuff on our plate. Yeah. Now, I mean, this is this is perfect. And I think one thing about this discussion is that we're talking about these two problems, right? These two questions. One is, are they right? And two, even if they are right, what's still wrong with this argument? Because I think a lot of people in flaw questions will sometimes zero in on one flaw and they can't let go of that to the end of the world, right? That's the only thing that they're focusing on and they don't see the correct answer because they think the correct answer has to be that one flaw that they identified 
and they put their blinders on and don't see anything else. Yeah, the and but the problem with that is that then they end up picking some weird, bizarre answer. Yeah, right? they like, force <laughs> the answer into that thing that they're looking for. They do that, yeah, or they just like, yeah. oh, I couldn't find it, so I just picked a random one. And it's like that's unfortunate because you really need to have two ways to get to the correct answer. I mean, you can predict the answer and go find it, but you can also eliminate yeah. the ones that you know are not the right answer. And I, I think people skip that second part a lot because they'll just get so married to one idea, they don't find it, and then they like, just go, ah, fuck it, and just pick any answer. Do you have this a lot in your class where people are like, oh, I picked D because I just got there and that was all that was left? That would be an interesting like data probably to, to like actually get the data on that because I have certainly speculated about that before that my guess is that E is the most commonly yeah. chosen incorrect mm -hmm. answer. E or maybe A. Because yeah. it's just like, ah, fuck it, I'm going to pick this. <laughs> you know? And, and, I, but I do, I for sure see students, they start, mm. re, they start rooting for D and E, right? Like if they didn't like A, they didn't like B, didn't like C, then they're sort of lowering their standards. They're hoping that something will be it so they can mm -hmm. move on. And they start rooting for D and then they're really rooting for E yeah. or outright just picking E without even reading it. Right? Didn't like A, didn't like B, didn't like yeah. C, didn't like D. Well, must be E, pick it, move on. That's just yeah. silly. That's just horrible strategy. This hospital executive's argument is most vulnerable to which one of the following objections? And I would say that this is a flaw question. Yep, I agree. Okay. And, and you know, which one of these is an objection that we would make back? So, I'm, again, I'm in the car ride home with the hospital executive. Sure. Which one of these would be a sensible thing to say? A. The argument confuses the causes of a problem with appropriate solutions to that problem. I'm having trouble pinning the causes of a problem. So the unauthorized access, maybe, or that's described as the problem, with the appropriate solution. I mean, if this... But that would be like more yeah. unauthorized access. Like this, is, this is so... <laughs> right, like... <laughs> Hey, those donuts are making you fat. You better eat more donuts. That would be yeah. confusing the causes this, this with is, the solution. Yeah. But my point here is that a lot of times with these answer choices, they have a lot of abstract phrases, right? And I'll zero in on one abstract phrase to try to understand what it's referring to in the passage. And I'm having trouble like referring this to something yep. and referring another part of this answer choice to another part and making it make sense. So I, I had kind of a befuddled uh, explanation there, but it's just like it is... Yeah, I guess there never even was any cause yeah. and effect in the facts, yes. right? It was just, hey, here's a threat. It wasn't like, why are we having this threat of unauthorized access? Oh, it's because we have mm -hmm. bad something. You know, there was no cause ever mentioned. Yeah. So A seems to be a pretty mm -hmm. easy skip, and it's out. B, the argument relies on the testimony of experts whose expertise is not shown to be sufficiently broad to support their general claim. I, I like this. I mean, I, I almost stopped you when it said the argument relies on the testimony of experts because one thing I find myself doing with these answer choices is I will read part of them and I'll come to sort of a place that's a natural stopping point and I'll say to myself, so far so good. Did it do that? Yeah, absolutely. It yeah. did rely on the testimony of experts. Several computer experts. Yep. And then... So it did do that part. 
whose expertise is not shown to be sufficiently broad to support their general claim. They did yes, make they a general the most claim. significant threat. This is this is actually ties into exactly what you were saying on the way home with the hospital executive. Look, they are computer experts. They're making this claim about unauthorized access to confidential data, which is in their expertise. But then you're drawing a conclusion about our highest priority over all other things, including lawsuits, whatever. Yeah. How do they know what all our threats are? Right. They've absolutely they know everything there is to know about unauthorized access to confidential data. No one in the world knows more than these people do about unauthorized access to confidential data. But that doesn't mean that just because they know about it, they're they're qualified to tell us yeah. what our number one threat is. Because yeah. we're about to go under because of people suing us. So I would I would I feel like the argument fits. It's describing what happened. Uh, this is a problem. So I would keep this one open. I would not pick it, but I would definitely keep it open. Yeah. Oh, I would never pick it until I've read all of the answer choices. I'm going to do that always on this on yep. the logical reasoning. I will always read all five. But I would be feeling very good about B. One thing I guess to mention about this is that I I really see flaw questions as a kind of mm-hmm. a, they're similar to must be true questions, in that we're making an accusation and we have to pick something that just mm-hmm. fits right. It has to have happened. And so and you taught me that your process for flaw questions, right? Did it, did it happen? Is it a problem? And here, this definitely did happen. The argument did rely on the testimony of experts. The argument did not show that their expertise is sufficiently broad to support a general Mm -hmm. claim, which they did make a general claim. So I don't feel like I'm going out on a limb, Mm -hmm. I guess, is the important thing to say here with B. I'm trying to be conservative when I make this accusation and I feel pretty comfortable making yeah. the accusation that's described in B. C says, the argument assumes that a correlation between two phenomena is evidence that one is the cause no of the other. way whatsoever. No. It didn't do that. Yeah, it didn't do that. There was no correlation ever cited. There was no cause and effect ever cited. By the way, correlation causation is one of the main flaws yeah. that we should be tuned into. Right? I mean, it's like sure. the second most yeah. common flaw on the LSAT, maybe. If sufficient and necessary is number one, yeah. correlation causation is probably number two. And if they did not do that, then I don't see how I can. I agree 100%. This is, this is one of those answer choices where as you start to read it, you recognize, oh, they're describing a correlation to causation flaw. I am very familiar with those flaws. This is not that. I'm crossing this out. There are some situations where students will be debating between the correct answer, which may be some sort of esoteric flaw that's not really common on the LSAT, but they'll be debating between that answer and the another answer choice that talks about correlation and causation or talks about necessary and sufficient mix-ups. And they're sitting there debating between those two answer choices, and I'm thinking to myself, this is an answer choice that is so common, this correlation to causation answer choice or this necessary sufficient mix-up answer choice is so common that you should read it, know exactly what flaw it's talking about, and say, well, I know that this argument is not suffering from this flaw. 
So I can cross this out with 100% confidence, which must mean that it's the other answer choice that I was sort of debating or on the fence about, but I know that this is now wrong. Like it's unfortunate that they get caught up in the language for these two answer choices, correlation, causation, and necessary, sufficient, because they are so common and they're, they're really easy to identify, I think, once you get familiar with them. That's what I think. That's why, you know, in my logical reasoning encyclopedia, the big ass heavy purple book, I put the flaw category first in that book because of this exact reason, which was if you just do a lot of flaw questions, you'll realize that this correlation causation is a wrong answer on a million flaw questions. It's also the right answer on a million flaw questions, but it, it, I'm never surprised when this is the answer. Right? It's not like I see that in the answer choices and I go, oh shit, I never would have thought about that. It's like, I already am so tuned in to the idea that they're going to consistently make these correlation causation errors. That when they do make the correlation causation error, I'm already yelling yeah. about it way before I start reading the answer choices. It's not like now they're going to sell it yeah. to me. Like, oh, hey, you know, correlation causation. Well, and they didn't do that. Yep. If they would have done it, I would have already been pissed off about it. That, that makes flaw questions super easy, right? Because mm-hmm. you can recognize all the wrong answers because you know exactly what those answers would, you know what the argument would yeah. look like now, if I mean, they had It is hard at first because these are abstract terms and even this, the argument assumes that a correlation between yes. two phenomena is evidence that one is the cause of the other. Like when people first see that, they're like, eh, what? What was just said to me? I haven't used the word phenomena since whenever or ever. Um, it's just not a very common word, you know? But once you get familiar with these, these should be really easy to eliminate and you shouldn't be debating them or they should be really easy to choose. And so that's, that's the goal. So just be very exactly. familiar. The bottom line is be familiar yeah. with this answer choice. If it's not, read it 100 times until you're comfortable with what it's saying. Yeah, just to make that, I mean, even more sufficient necessary flaw and correlation causation flaw, you have to know those forward and backward. You have to know exactly what those flaws are. You should be able to, at a you know, drop of a hat, you should be able to allow me to make mm-hmm. an example of a sufficient and necessary flaw. I'll make it up, you know, <laughs> and and allow me to make up an example of a correlation causation flaw. If you can't do those two things, you have a huge opportunity to to figure out those two things. Yeah. It's going to make a big difference for your logical reasoning score. D, the argument draws a general conclusion about a group. Nope. Based, yeah, which this it does is already not making do. me vomit. <laughs> D is already out. Based on data about an unrepresentative sample of that group. Uh, there was no data cited. This just didn't happen. No, this one didn't How happen. How could it and, be a and flaw? As you get happen. better in flaw questions, this is also another answer choice. This is a great question. Uh, this is another very common flaw. It's not as common yeah. as necessary, sufficient, or correlation, causation, but this is still way up there, and you should know this one. It's not going to be a random flaw. You're almost certainly going to probably see one of these on your test. Well, of course, and yeah. you'll you'll certainly see these wrong answer choices. Yeah. On every test, you'll see these wrong answer choices. So I think you need to know exactly what this flaw would look like too. This is the um, part-to-whole flaw, right? 
or a unrepresentative sample flaw. Yeah, it's a very uh, it's it's uh, I would say yeah, it's definitely a version of part to whole. Like you can you can call a lot of these part to whole flaws whether it's biased cuz they're you're basically making yeah. a conclusion about the whole from the part or whatever. But even the next answer choice I, I already kind of glanced down at it, but it's kind of another version, a different variety of part yeah. to whole. Yeah. And the part to whole flaw by the way is you know, um or the unrepresentative sample flaw is uh, the Lakers beat the Warriors yesterday. Therefore, the Lakers yeah. are the better team. I um, did you, you don't follow <laughs> I basketball, am so boring. Ben, but yesterday was the biggest. Was the <laughs> no, you're not boring, Ben. You're very smart. Um, we were in a bar yesterday morning uh, for brunch, and okay. well, it was like mm-hmm. three p.m. But um, we were having brunch, and the Lakers and Warriors were on. The Warriors are like the best team of all time, and the Lakers are like one of the worst teams of all time. And the Lakers yesterday beat the Warriors, so it was like oh, the biggest yeah. single game upset in the history of the NBA. I really don't give a shit, but yeah. it was just on, yeah. so we we happened to see it. But that would be the flaw of drawing a general conclusion: the Lakers are better based on data yeah. from an unrepresentative sample. One game, they beat yeah. the they beat the Warriors yesterday. Therefore, they must be better. And that is a mile away from what happened in this hospital executive's argument, so that is not the answer. That's out. A, C, and D are out, and we still love B. E says, the argument infers that a property belonging to large institutions belongs to all institutions. Yeah, so this is another part to whole flaw that it's describing, which again is not what we saw at all in the passage. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, in order for E to be the answer, it would be something like, because Microsoft is publicly traded, therefore Mm -hmm. Fox LSAT is publicly traded, right? That if any large institution does something, then all institutions must do that thing. And I, I really think that you should be able to, especially here for C, D, and E, you ought to be able to, to make an argument that would make C yep. and D and E the right answer. Sure. That's a good skill, I think, for people to have. Unfortunately, the hospital executive did not do what C, D, or E are describing, or A, and we're going to have to go with B. Which we felt good about, but now we know for sure. Right. And it's, it is really important, right, to go through all five answers on the logical reasoning. There will be cases where we'll think it's B, and then we'll get down to E, and we'll read E, and holy shit, it sounds like E is saying the exact same thing that B was saying. And then you compare B and E, and you realize that there's one little subtle difference, and hey, actually, there might have been something wrong with B. And it turns out that E is the right answer. So if you've got, you know, you've invested this much in it, you're pretty sure that B is the answer, you might as well invest another 25 sure. seconds and just be 100 And I think it sure. might even be faster than that. I mean, when you're reading these answer choices, it can go extremely fast. Nope. Sure. Yeah, I see correlation caught. Nope. General conclusion, unrepresented. Nope. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Right. I said 25 seconds might be more like five seconds. And one thing you said is you might read E and it's you say, hey, wait, this is very similar to B. It also could be totally different. But if you think about it for a half second, you're like, wait a sec. Yeah, this is happening. And yeah, that's a problem. Hmm. Did is this the flaw? And maybe B is not the flaw. And then you go back and you see you missed the word "not," or you read E incorrectly, and B was actually right. But sometimes you know it's a different flaw that they're describing, so you have to be open to other possible flaws. But 
yeah, you just got to check because with logical reasoning, you could always be missing a word or an idea, and that's why you're, it's wrong, but you just missed it. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like I'm trying to make E into the right answer when yeah. I've already found what I think is the answer, but I'm giving mm -hmm. it a chance. You know, I'm going to look at it. I'll, I'll be happy to, to dismiss it, but I am going to dismiss it. I'm not going to just like totally skip it. Awesome. That is a great question, man. Number 17 from yeah. section two of the June 2007 LSAT. If you know that, yeah, then you're on the right track. Really good flaw question. Well, I think that's it for today, right? Yeah, I think that's it, buddy. Um, enjoy your last couple days down there uh, in paradise. Thanks, I will. I hope everyone else is having a great time wherever they are in the world. Uh, you can always email us questions at help at thinkinglset.com. That email goes to both of us. We'll see it, and we'll try to tackle that on the next show. We get to almost all of them, I think. And um, you can also email me at ben at strategyprep.com or nathan at foxlset.com. Uh, anything else? The the blog is thinkinglset.com, and you can write comments there or find past episodes. A lot of the specific timing for when we talk about things is starting to get on there too, right? So, yeah, and Twitter. Uh, I'm I am at n fox. Ben is at strategy prep. Together we are at thinking lsat. And you should also tweet at Kate Hall. C A T E Hall, Kate Hall, and tell her that she needs to come on the app. Yes, else yes, podcast. please do. That'd be awesome. All right. Great. Talk to you soon, buddy. Thanks. Yeah.